0: We are continuing through the middle section of Colossians chapter 1. It's a letter by Paul, half, two thirds of the way through the New Testament, as we have it mapped out in our Bibles. Move all this out of the way. This is what is this, our fifth in the series? Sixth in the series? We've been looking through the middle section of Colossians chapter 1, the letter that Paul wrote to the people at Colossae, the church there, and he was attacking false philosophies, dangerous pagan beliefs that were floating around, that were devaluing Jesus. And he, he, he wanted to write a letter to these guys and say, please, never lose sight of Jesus. If you lose sight of him, you've lost everything. Never lose sight of Jesus and that's what he does. Throughout Colossians chapter 1, as, as David was explaining, they didn't have, necessarily have verses and chapters as we do. That's just the way they're delineated in our printed Bible so we can easily find references. But in that chapter, first chapter of his letter, he keeps pointing the way to Jesus. keeps pointing the way to Jesus. Then he goes into the therefores and how we should live and how we should combat the false philosophies around us we're going to look at another verse today, verse 19, which we'll read in a sec. Anybody here who's good at listening? Lots of shaking heads, not many nodding heads. I'm terrible, you ask Jenny. Steve's good at listening apparently. Can I ask Helen later? Okay, right. (laughs) I'll chase you up on that. In fact, we've been doing marriage prep with Steve and Helen, this brilliant course that helps you invest in the marriage rather than just invest in the wedding day, isn't it? It's a great course to do helps prepare, helps talk about communication and conflict and plans and dreams and backgrounds and all sorts. Really, really helpful. And uh, Jenny and I have benefited well from it. (laughs) We've been married 18, 19 years. It's a great course. But even in that, it talks about communication, how to listen. And I'm a typical bloke, and while you're talking to me, I'm offloading all your woes and your problems. While you're talking to me, generally speaking, I tend to be formulating my answer and thinking more about that, ready to pounce in when your mouth stops. It's a bit of a blokey thing, I know, but I'm not very good at that. And I'm learning over the years to listen better. And the best type of listening is when you can immerse yourself in that person's world. You can understand where they're coming from. You can understand a little bit more of their hurt, of their pain, of their stress, of their tension. Particularly if you've actually been there yourself. It makes a big difference. And so often, religion, faith, God, a belief in God is often quite an aloof thing, where there's, there's a God out there who's God. He's a bit he's different to us. He can't really know what I'm dealing with. He's not interested in me. But here today, this verse we've been looking at in a sec, Paul's trying to get across this truth that he's been here, he's dwelt amongst us, and he understands. And so when he says, I listen, he means, I listen. Because I've been there. He, he's the true empathizer. And it goes beyond that as well, which we'll look at in a sec. He really knows, he doesn't know how to immerse in our world, he has immersed himself in our world with us. And it's a mind-blowing truth. The more you unpack it, the more there is to unpack. It's a can of wonderful worms. Let us read from, from verse 13 of Colossians 1, because this is the, these are the whole chunk of verses we're reading through. It's always good to read verses within context, isn't it? We looked at Jesus from different angles as Paul has presented him. First of all, John read, uh, preached on verses 13 and 14. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There is Jesus the rescuer. He's rescued us when we couldn't rescue ourselves. He's dealt with the problem of sin on our behalf. All we have to do is believe and let him be Lord of our lives. Verse 15, this is Julian preached on this. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. There is the image of the invisible God. Do you want to know what the Father's like? You look to Jesus and he points the way. Then it's my, my verse I preached on a few weeks back, for um, verse 16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Everywhere we look, not just physical things physical forms, which is amazing enough, was it? 76 billion stars, 21 noughts after it. So many observable stars are in the universe. He ignited all of those, but he also put systems in place. He's behind the idea of family and marriage. He's behind all of that. Verse 17, David preached on this one. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He sustains us, and we can lean on him. We can feed on him. Verse 18, was Julian's last one, and he is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so then everything he might have, the supremacy. He is over all things. He's never relinquished his authority. He never had to take it up. He had it all the time given into him by the Father. He's over all things. Do we live in the light of that? Do we we rest in that truth? And then today, for God, verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Here's the next one. God... The fullness of God dwelling in Jesus. What does that mean? That's what we're going to look at today. If you want to turn to chapter 2, verse 9, there's another verse that says the, thing, it says the same thing in slightly different words. Chapter 2, verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Lives. Present tense. Not just lived for 33 years, lives in bodily form. He still has that body, doesn't he? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's pray first. Jesus, I'm just a man. We're looking at you, God, as man. God and man all in one. An incredible package. We can't quite get our heads round. Lord, I'm just a man and I need your help to share this truth. Lord, for all my faults and my weaknesses, my human frame, may by your Holy Spirit help me to preach your word this morning not just my clever ideas or the paragraphs I've prepared in my notes. Lord, I want to preach your truth. It's a responsibility, it's an onus, but it's also a privilege. But Lord, more importantly, don't let me just deliver it well, but impact our lives, myself included. We want to to walk away from here with truth embedded in our hearts that we can't resist, we can't run away from, and we have to act upon. Lord, transform us this morning, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, as we unpack this word. In your name we pray. Amen. Christianity declares Jesus of Nazareth, born 3-4-ish BC in Bethlehem, a historical figure, Christianity declares him as the fullness of God in dwelling. The fullness of the deity was pleased to dwell in him in bodily form. He was the Son of God, uncreated, eternal, but he stepped into a human suit, if you like, and walked upon our planet. It's unique. Do you know many other religions that say that, declare that? Not just a man who became God, some say that. Not just God who walked among us like a Superman, like Thor from the Marvel films, who's invincible and different to us, but God and man all in one. He is different because he is God, but he was in a physical, fleshly form that could hurt, emotionally and physically. Christianity is unique, and Paul is trying to get this point across as yet another aspect, another perspective of Jesus, the Son of God, what it means, and here he is. Here's another version, it's called the Incarnation. He walked amongst us in flesh. Never gave up his deity, never gave up his godhood, but he took on flesh as well. And there's a reason for that. Because the Bible, throughout the Bible, continues to say to us, God loves to dwell with his people. He didn't make us as a hobby. He didn't make us as pets. He made us and intended us to be family. Massively, massively different. He didn't, he didn't make us, mankind, on this planet like some big diorama, like a train set, where he can escape to his shed and have a little tinker with us every now and again and put some more cows on the hills and paint the trees and put a few more people on the platform and watch the trains go around. Now sometimes people's, they, might, they obviously won't think literally like that, but it's that kind of people's perspective of God. Turn the electricity on, watch the trains go around, put a few more people on the platform, go back indoors and have his dinner. He didn't make us like something to be tinkered with, like a toy. And he didn't make us as pets, that just need feeding and are always after tickles and want to sit on his lap, and tickle me, tickle me. <coughs> trouble is we act like that sometimes. God tickle me, make me feel comfortable, make me happy give me the nice big house and I want all those Blu-rays and I want lots and lots of friends and a nice easy job and no stress, blah, blah, blah. So you want me to step out of my comfort zone? don't think so. We act like that quite a lot, don't we? It didn't make us as pets. Mankind has always been intended for community with God. The ultimate expression of that is family. Intimate family. People rescued from their sin, from the darkness that we've let ourselves fall into. We can't rescue ourselves from there. But he has chosen to rescue us by his sacrifice on the cross and say, you're now my son and my daughter. Come into my family. like the ultimate community forever. That's what Janet was reading this morning from Revelation. God and his people together again forever. And that starts right here, right now because of Jesus. It's amazing. God loves to dwell with his people and Jesus is the ultimate expression of that. But you might be thinking but isn't God omnipresent? Isn't he everywhere all the time anyway? So how can he dwell with us when he's isn't he just doing that by default? Well, yes and no. God is omnipresent, and that doesn't mean he dilutes himself, spreads himself thin. Anywhere at any time, in any space, in any time, it's one hundred percent God. He exists everywhere. And he declares that quite openly in the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 23 and 24. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God says this. Lots of rhetorical questions. He's got a good sense of humour. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? We know what the answer should be. God is everywhere. Sometimes we don't always act like that. When I'm stressing out at work, I forget he's there with me. When I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing, I want to pretend that he's not there. It's easily done, isn't it? But he is everywhere all the time. We need to remember that. But he also, on top of that, chooses to make his presence exceptionally known. He is everywhere, unbeknownst to us a lot of the time. Sometimes we know it, sometimes we don't think about it. Sometimes people deny that and don't want to know about it. But as well as that, sometimes he particularly demonstrates himself, he declares his presence, he intervenes. He says, I'm here, know me. Look, here I am. And littered throughout the Bible, there are occasions when we get to see God going, I'm here, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire burning bush, theophanies as they're called as well, where we see throughout the Old Testament, Jesus came, makes himself known. Today we get to see him by his Holy Spirit. When we say, welcome Holy Spirit, we welcome you in, please come amongst us, but he's here already. But there's a reason why we say that, that's not a redundant phrase. Make yourself known, show your glory, touch my heart, make me cry, break me, whatever it is you've got to do, but come amongst us. He's already here, but it's not a geographical thing. It's a relationship. To draw near to God, for God to draw near to us, isn't nearness in place, it's nearness in relationship. And that's different. And so when Paul says in here that the fullness of God was happy to dwell in Jesus of Nazareth, in that flesh... This is about relationship. He came in amongst his people and made himself especially known in a massive way. It's quite often, sometimes in the translation, words can lose some of their substance. Because the fullness of God dwelt in him. Yes, he became man. But if we really understand what these words mean, to dwell doesn't simply mean to reside. That word dwell means to live permanently permanently. So much bigger. The fullness of God chose to live permanently in Jesus. And the word fullness, we've got to try and get our heads around how big this is. Fullness. This is the word fullness means sum total. The sum total, nothing less. The sum total of God lives permanently in Jesus. That's huge. This is why Paul has already had to explain he made everything and he sustains everything because if you don't get that you're going to belittle your image, your vision of Jesus. The sum total of that God, the eternal God chose to live permanently in Jesus Christ and walk on this earth 2,000 years ago. Why? Because I've already said it God loves to dwell with his people that's for starters they go somewhere else later. Genesis chapter 3, we see that God walked in the garden in the call of the day. God walked in the garden. The gardener walked in his garden, enjoying it. Amazing. No idea what that looked like. doesn't matter. It's amazing. He loves to dwell with his people. Straight after that, that was, in fact, that was the time when he was walking in the call of the garden. He was calling out for Adam and Eve. Is there something you should be telling me. Something had happened. A man had chosen to go their own way and do their own thing. And it was called the force. When sin came into the world, when we usurp God, we tried to usurp God from his throne and think we know better. We did what we weren't supposed to do. And the fall came into the world, which caused separation from God because of our sin, because of our brokenness. But God set himself apart, a people, the people of Israel, as a precursor for what was to come. And he told them to make a tabernacle, a tent. And he says in Exodus 25, verse 8, to Moses, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. He still hasn't given up on mankind. I want to dwell with my people. Give me a tent that I can reside in. Give me a home. I want to dwell amongst my people. Remember that word, tent. That will come up in a minute again. And then some centuries later, Solomon completed the temple And God wanted to dwell in it. That's why he said to Solomon, you're going to build me a temple in Jerusalem that I can dwell in. uh, 2 Chronicles, chapter 5, verse 14. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is omnipresent God who's everywhere all the time, but he exceptionally made himself known. He filled the temple. This is Again, welcome Holy Spirit. Fill us. Let us see you. It's possible. He does it. God filled the temple. He loves to be amongst his people. And then when Janet was reading from Revelation earlier, it's Revelation chapter 21 verse 3. The future says, Revelation 21 verse 3, the dwelling of God is with men and he will live among them. God loves to be amongst his people. We're his family. We see God dwelling amongst his people in the garden. We see him dwelling amongst his people in the tent. We see him dwelling amongst his people in the temple. In the future we see him dwelling amongst his people in the new earth. And they're all signposts, not just to something, but to someone. Jesus, dwelling amongst his people. The explicit fullness sum total of God dwelt physically here on earth. It's called the incarnation, which simply means becoming flesh. If you have trouble remembering the word incarnation, remember chili con carne. It's my my favourite food stuff chilli con carne chilli with meat chilli with flesh carne flesh incarnation in the flesh that's what Jesus did he put on a human suit do you want to turn to John chapter 1 verse 14 fourth book of the New Testament the fourth gospel and in the first chapter another mind-blowing chapter they're everywhere John chapter one verse fourteen. It may even come up here. There we go. The Word became flesh, and here's the word again, and made His dwelling among us. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That literally means, here comes the tent thing. He pitched His tent. The Word, Living God, pitched His tent in a human suit and was in amongst us. I mean, the sum total of God in a human body, why didn't it just blow up? I'm serious. It's because of his power he held it together. God, it's vibrating like nobody's business. Just think about it, the sum total of God dwelling in a human body. We just can't get our heads around it. No one could have written this. Jesus entered our world not just as omnipresent, eternal God, but wearing our clothes and walking in our shoes. Because he wanted to, because he wanted to dwell amongst his people and then perform the ultimate act sometime later that we'll talk about. We've got Christmas coming up. Christmas celebrates this. Christmas celebrates that God came to be with us in human form. That little child in that manger was the omnipresent creator, sustainer, rescuer God in little swaddling clothes. He didn't stop being God at any point. He was fully God and fully man. He wasn't a man who attained deity and he wasn't a God who pretended to be man. He's both. One of a kind. He took on humanity in addition to his divinity. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I love the message, paraphrases it as the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighbourhood. Ah! He moved in next door. I love it. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighbourhood. Bonkers and it's brilliant. Why? Partly because the sacrifice needed to be made on our behalf because we can't rescue ourselves and there is a price to pay for our sin, the darkness of our hearts. All of us are affected by it. You can't get away from that. And something needed to be done it's us or him you chose to take our place but also in the run up to that he lived through every temptation known to man he lived with the stresses of caring for his family, he lived through the stresses of the pain in the world he lived through the stresses of grieving for his loved ones when they died he knows what it's like so we were talking about earlier about empathy, about listening Jesus has been there Another way of looking at it. Has anyone seen Dances with Wolves, the film? Fantastic film, love it. It's a brilliant film. Directed by Kevin Costner. It's a western set during the US Civil War. And Kevin Costner plays a guy called Lieutenant John Dunbar. And he gets injured. and gets a bit suicidal and inadvertently kicks off a big battle, and, uh, which they end up winning. And uh, they say to him, Well done, you. I don't know what I did. Well done Anyway. What can we do for you? Where would you like to be posted? And he goes, I want to be put out right on the western frontier because that's going, that's diminishing and I want to see it before it goes. I want to see it with my own eyes. So they send him out to the farthest outpost and he ends up, through a series of events, ends up getting isolated out there on his own and they don't even know he's still out there. So he's on his own and he gets to meet the Sioux. The tribe of Native Americans gets to meet them. And over time, he gets more and more in with them and they learn to trust him, and he learns to trust them, eventually he becomes one of them. He dresses like them, he looks like them, learns their language, they give him a new name. He's no longer John Dunbar, he is now Dances with Wolves. That's what they call him. And he's become one of them. He falls in love with another white girl, who's grown up with them and become one of them. He falls in love with her. He becomes Sue. And eventually when the army come back, they capture him, attack the Sioux, they capture him, thinking he's one of them. They don't recognise him as being, one of their, as being, being a, a, a white man and a North American invader. They see him as a Native American, Red Indian, a member of the Sioux because he's so absorbed into, into their culture and becoming like them. Eventually when they realise, he understands he has to make the ultimate sacrifice. He can no longer be a white man, he's fallen in love with the, with the Sioux tribe. He's fallen in love with his new people that he's become a part of and lived like and looked like and walked amongst. He loves them. He can no longer become a white man again. Can't go back to his old past. But no longer can he say with the Sioux either because he knows he will be hunted down forever by the army. So he makes the ultimate sacrifice. He and his lady, they make the ultimate sacrifice of isolation and they go off and have nothing to do with the Sioux. As much as he loves those people, he sacrifices himself so that they'll be safe. That's what Jesus did. He came amongst us to become one of us, to know what it's like to be one of us, and then made the ultimate sacrifice that we might live. That's what Jesus did. He knows what it's like to be one of us, He knows what it's like to be in the workplace. He did decades of carpentry and masonry. He knows what it's like to work for money, to put food on the table. He knows what it's like when family and friends die. He knows what it's like when you hurt. He knows what it's like when you're tempted. And the humility of a God to put himself in that position. He didn't have to, but he chose to because of his love for us. He's the ultimate empathizer. Nobody understands me. Nobody knows what I'm going through. That's a lie. Jesus does. Never forget, you can, whatever it is you're dealing with, you can always talk to him. He understands. He knows. Julian spoke on image recently. He's the image of the invisible God. Verse 15 of that chapter. In his physical form we got to see God in the flesh. This isn't a thing about simple looks. He's depicted in children's Bibles often as a bit of an Angelina Jolie with a beard, isn't he? This beautiful long silky hair, perfectly pristine white clothes. Look like that. We're missing the point anyway, it's not about looks. In fact, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2 said he had no beauty or majesty to attract us. He wasn't a handsome bloke like me. He was just a bloke. There was nothing to go like look of him. He was attractive for a whole other reason. It was his character. And that's why he's not really described in the Bible. Other than Isaiah's reference, that there's nothing much to say about him in the first place. There's a point there's a reason for that. There's a reason why we don't know what he looked like. It doesn't matter. You're missing the point. It's about his character. We see his character in action. We see his passion. We see his anger. We see his grief. We see his joy. We see his lamenting. We see his grief. We see his singing, his consoling. We see his character, God's character, his amazing attributes of love, grace, mercy, justice in action. That's what Jesus looks like. And therefore, because he's in the, in the image of the father, that's what the father looks like. It's about character, it's about attributes, it's about values. We see him stopping when he's hugely busy to minister to a sick woman. He didn't have to, I'm busy. I've got more people to attend to right now. I'll come back to you later. He stops and attends to her. We see him when he's grieving his cousin's death. We see him stop to serve the crowd. He didn't have to. I'm busy, I'm grieving. Give me six months to get over it. I'll be back later. No, he, he served them. He got angry when he saw his father's temple being used for monetary gain. He flipped his lid in a righteous way. Got the whips out. Called all sorts of names under the sun. He got angry. We see him singing hymns with his brothers, singing songs with them. We see him weeping over the city of Jerusalem. If only you turn to the Father, if only you'd see what you're doing. It makes him cry. We're a bit British and we like to not wear our emotions on our sleeves a lot of the time, don't we? Jesus didn't. There's nothing wrong with showing your emotions in an appropriate way. Because Jesus did. He wasn't frightened to show what was going on inside and to be honest about it. And that way we can, we can have security and peace and hope when we see Jesus doing that to know if I talk to him, he'll understand. Whatever it is you're dealing with right now, and I know some of you are, he's ready and waiting and he's listening and he really does understand because he's been there. The blues are often a mournful kind of music, aren't they? But there's a reason for that, and it's not just because they're depressing. Eric Clapton, brilliant quote, Eric Clapton said, listening to the blues isn't about being sad. Listening to the blues is about rejoicing because someone else knows your pain. Do You see that empathy there? They get me. That's what I'm dealing with. We can talk to Jesus like that. Because he knows. But it doesn't stop there. The brilliant thing is, it doesn't stop there. That fullness of God indwelling in human flesh isn't just so he can nod his head, his head sagely while you're getting it off your chest and he goes, oh no. It doesn't stop there. It's more than God simply being able to understand us and empathise with us. That would be great in itself. But if it was the case to simply have a God who can only nod sagely when we share our burdens, when we share our woes and our stresses and our anxieties, when we share our problems, he can only go, I know, but there's nothing I can do about it. But but I know how you're feeling. That's only one step, isn't it? That would be a weak God, don't you think, actually? Actually? If there's nothing you can do about it, Jenny really struggles. She's at East Kent College. She's a mentor there. She deals with a lot of their non-academic problems, a lot of pastoral problems, and some of what these kids go through and are dealing with now at home, to do with drugs and sex and fostering and death and oh, it's, it, they are kids and they shouldn't be having to deal with this stuff, but they are. And half the time, Jenny just feels impotent. She just feels. I understand the issue. It's awful. It's terrible. And all I can do is shrug my shoulders. She feels useless half the time because there's no system in place to deal with this situation. She contacts other agencies. Sometimes she's able to help a little bit. Ultimately, she can't fix their problems for them that she'd love to do. She'd like to bring some of them home. We haven't got the room. But she feels she feels she feels weak in that situation. She does what she can, but there's a limit. Can you imagine if God could empathize totally, I've been there. I know how you feel. There's nothing I can do. Let's watch Telly. That'd be horrible, wouldn't it? He has physically lived through the rain and he's physically lived through the sun. He empathises totally, but it doesn't stop there. A God who understands and has defeated the problem, that's what we want to hear, isn't it? And it's true, because he's in here. That fullness, that sum total of God living in the flesh provided the perfect mediator between God and man. Fully God and fully man. There's only one bridge between perfect God and imperfect man, and that is God and man together Jesus Christ. God never declared war on man, it's the other way around. Man declared war on God when Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, chose to go their own way and play under their rules. And we, by birth, are sinners as well. We declare war on God every time we say no. Every time we say, I'm going to do it my way. God never declared war on man, and yet he had decided all along he was going to provide a way out of it. He was going to provide a means of rescue because he still loved us. He decided all along he would bridge that chasm of sin through the perfect God-man. His son would come and enter human flesh and be the perfect mediator. God, without flesh, holy God, couldn't just simply turn a blind eye to sin. That's the question I get asked sometimes. Why can't can't God just turn a blind eye to us being imperfect? We're imperfect, it's the way we're built. No, it's it's our choice as well. But why can't a God turn a blind eye to sin? It's physically impossible. The universe would turn inside out. It, It just cannot happen. Because he's perfect God. Therefore a perfect God can't do something imperfect and turn a blind eye to imperfection. Does that make sense? It's not a riddle, it's truth. He has to do something about it to be perfectly just. And he chose to. And he sent his son. So God without flesh couldn't do anything. To to actually just turn a blind eye to sin, he has to do something. And a man who isn't God can't represent us. Wouldn't get anywhere near God. Wouldn't be allowed into his presence. We can't rescue ourselves. We try to sometimes. We try and work really hard and do good things and be nice people and try and convince God we're okay. doesn't work. But a perfect God-man, the sum total, 100% of God taking up permanent residence in a body and then choosing to stand in our place and go, put it on me. Let me write it on the cheque out of my own bank balance. See, it sounds so simple that all we have to do is just believe that and we're saved. But it is as simple as that. And the more, ever since I did that at the age of eleven, Jesus, I believe You died for me in my place because of my sin, and You rose again in victory over that, never to have to be done again. I believe in that, and I need Your help, and I want You to be Lord of my life. But I need Your help to do that, because I'm going to keep going to go my own way. But I'm sorry for what I've done, and I need Your help. When I made that prayer at the age of eleven, I'm still trying to work out 30 years later what that means. So it is as simple as that, but you step into a wonderful new world where you start to get your head around it. He made the ultimate sacrifice for his people, just like Lieutenant John Dunbar did. It's simple, and if you haven't done that, please don't hesitate. Give yourself up to him and let him take care of the messy stuff. He'll help you. There we doing for time. There's just a story I want to read in a minute. Because we also, as believers, as God's people, get to pass this on in a magnificent way. We get to follow his example. We get to declare his truth by action and by word. Because there's so many people out there that don't know this. God loves to dwell with his people. We've seen it physically in the garden, in the tent, in the temple, in Jesus' physical form. Return to Ephesians chapter 2 for a sec. Verse 22. See what it says. And this is why Paul keeps saying, here's Colossians chapter 1, all the aspects of Jesus, it's amazing. And then the following chapters are, therefore do this, therefore live like that, therefore avoid this, therefore be careful. It's Because he's presented the truth of Jesus in the first place. Why? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, what does it say? And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling, in which God lives by his spirit. He gets to dwell in us as well. We are his people, we are his temple, on this earth, he loves to dwell with us. And as soon as you are saved, the moment you have made that prayer of commitment, the the moment you've given your life up to him and repented of your sins, by his Holy Spirit, he dwells inside you. Never let go of that fact, don't belittle yourself in the workplace, or in your street, or in your home. God dwells in you by his Holy Spirit, you are his dwelling place, he loves to dwell with you. Speak with him, converse with him, have a chat with him while you're making a cup of tea, while you're eating, while you're watching telly, while you're going out for a walk. He's in you. Get excited about it. Never let go of this truth. (coughs) And it's not hard. Sometimes we write ourselves off I'm not a good speaker like such and such, I'm not very good at talking to people. I'm not very good at hands-on stuff. Sometimes it's just the little gestures that make all the difference to people. About letting God, as he dwells in us, to work through us. Just for a couple of minutes, I want to read this story and just show how easy it is, actually. but Sometimes we just have to step out of our comfort zone. This is a true story about a young guy called Daryl. Every month... The youth group at River Road Church visited Holcomb Manor, a local nursing home, to hold church services for the residents. Daryl Jenkins was a reluctant helper at the youth group and did not like nursing homes. For a long time he had avoided the monthly services, but when a flu epidemic depleted the group of helpers, Daryl agreed to help with the next month's service as long as he didn't have to do anything. During the service, Daryl felt awkward and out of place. He leaned against the back wall in between two residents in wheelchairs, and just as the service finished and Daryl was thinking about a quick exit, someone grabbed his hand. Startled, he looked down and saw a very old, frail and obviously lonely man in a wheelchair. What could Daryl do but hold the man's hand? The man's mouth hung open and his face held no expression. Daryl doubted whether he could hear or see anything. As everyone began to go home, Daryl realised he wanted to leave the old man. He, sorry, he didn't want to leave the old man. He had been left too many times in his own life. And caught somewhat off guard by his feelings, Darrell leaned over and whispered, um, uh, I'm sorry, I have to leave, but I'll be back. I promise. Without any warning, the man squeezed Daryl's hand and then let go. Daryl's eyes filled with tears as he grabbed his stuff and started to leave. Inexplicably, he heard him say, say to the old man, I love you. Where did that come from? What's the matter with me? Darryl would return the next month and the month after that. And each time it was the same routine. Darrell would stand at the back, Oliver would h- grab his hand, Darrell would say he had to leave, Oliver would squeeze his hand and Darrell would say softly, I love you Mr Leek. We'd learnt his name by then of course. As the months went on, about a week before the Holcomb Manor service, Darrell would find himself looking forward to visiting his aged friend. And on Darrell's sixth visit, the service started but Oliver still hadn't been wheeled out. Daryl didn't feel too concerned at first because it often took the nurses a long time to wheel everyone out to the service. But halfway into the service, Oliver still hadn't appeared and Daryl became alarmed. He went to the head nurse. "Uh, I don't see Mr Leake here today. Is he okay?" The nurse asked Daryl to follow her and led him to room 27. Oliver lay in his bed, his eyes closed, his breathing uneven. At 40 years of age, Daryl had never seen someone dying but he knew that Oliver was near death. Slowly, he walked to the side of the bed and grabbed Oliver's hand. When Oliver didn't respond, tears filled Daryl's eyes. He knew he might never see Oliver alive again. He had so much that he wanted to say, but the words wouldn't come out. He stayed with Oliver for about an hour, and then the youth director gently interrupted to say they were leaving. Daryl got up to leave and squeezed Mr Leek's hand for the last time as he said, I'm sorry Oliver, I have to go. I love you. As he unclasped his hand, he felt a squeeze. Mr Leak had responded. He had squeezed Darryl's hand. The tears were unstoppable now and Darryl stumbled towards the door trying to gain his composure. A young woman was standing at the door. Darryl almost bumped into her. I'm sorry, I said I didn't see you. It's alright. I'm going to stop crying. There we go. I've been waiting to see you, she said. I'm Oliver's granddaughter. He's dying, you know. Yes, I know, he said. I wanted to meet you, she went on. When the doctor said he was dying, I came immediately. We have always been very close. They said he couldn't talk, but he's been talking to me. Not much, but I know what he's saying. Last night, he woke up. His eyes were bright and alert. He looked straight into my eyes and said, please say goodbye to Jesus for me. And then he lay back down and closed his eyes. He caught me off guard. And as soon as I gathered my composure, I whispered to him, Grandpa, you don't need to say goodbye to Jesus. You're going to be with him soon and you can tell him hello. Grandpa struggled to open his eyes again. This time his face lit up with a mischievous smile and he said, as clearly as I'm talking to you, I know but Jesus comes to see me every month and he might not know that I've gone. He closed his eyes and hasn't spoken since. I told the nurse what he'd said and she told me about you coming every month holding his hand. I wanted to thank you for him, for me and... Well, never thought of Jesus as being as chubby and bald as you, but I imagine that Jesus is very glad to have you mistaken for him. I know Oliver is. Thank you. She leaned over and kissed Daryl on the forehead. Oliver Leake died peacefully the next morning. If a reluctant follower of Jesus like Daryl can be mistaken for Jesus, maybe you and I can as well. He dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. We get to be Jesus on his behalf. We're delegated with his authority as his people to be him out there, as well as in here. Never lose sight of that fact. The sum total of eternal God dwelt on this earth. He still has that body now as he sits at the Father's right hand in heaven, and yet he still dwells on earth by his Holy Spirit in us, his people. The fullness of God chose to dwell. This is family stuff. If you've never given your life to Christ, please come and speak to me afterwards, speak to David. It's a truth you just cannot miss. This is eternity speaking. And if you have, and you struggle struggled to step forward into the truth or what it means for you, again, come and speak to me or David. This is where the adventure starts. There is so much more to do out there. and We can't do it on our own, we're just humans. But we have the living God dwelling in us, his people. This is where it's at. Shall we pray? King Jesus. Even we today are surrounded by mixed philosophies that devalue you or deny you. We are also surrounded by philosophies that do speak of you, but in the wrong light, and it's all about works and achieving credit before God Jesus is all about you and nothing else and Lord we declare that we are not frightened to declare that, that is the truth we believe your word, we believe your reality we believe in who you are a historical figure who actually was the son of God, always has been always will be and you came here to rescue us you dwelt on this earth that you might lead the way to show that you are the way It's all about you, Jesus. Never let us let go of that fact. Never never let us lose sight of that. But Lord Jesus, we just want to glorify you. To you be the glory. That you choose to dwell in us, your people. Those of us that have given our lives to you. Lord, we need your help more than ever. To now effectively walk in your shoes. To go where you want us to go. To be you where you want us to be. To declare your truth, to point the way to you. To move in the power of the Holy Spirit. That as we preach your words, signs and wonders might follow too. That endorse your truth. And dumbfound the world. Lord, help us to do that. We're weak human creatures and we need your help but Lord, we love you, we thank you so much for rescuing us. I thank you so much for rescuing me. The more I see my sin, the more I recognise how big you are and what you've done for me. Jesus, we thank you, we love you. Keep filling us with your Holy Spirit. We say, Holy Spirit, who dwells already, we say, make yourself known in us. Come fill us to overflowing. If you want that right now, just lift your hands up. If you want more of him, we can never have enough. We say, Holy Spirit, come. We say, Holy Spirit, you are welcome. Thank you that you're here all the time, that we can converse with you. Thank you that you understand what we're going through because you've been there and done that yourself. But also thank you that you've set us apart, set us free on the cross, and in your resurrection, that we might live filled with the breath of your life, filled with your Holy Spirit to continue the good works that you've prepared for us even before we were born. Holy Spirit, come and fill us. Fill us up. Send us out. Enable the conversations at the fireworks party tonight. Enable the conversations over dinner. This afternoon, enable conversations in the workplace, enable conversations with our neighbours and in the shops this week. Help us to be you, to point the way to you by your strength, by your power, by your Holy Spirit. In your precious name we pray. Amen.